So I was looking through your uh, your LinkedIn profile the other day, and and you're one of these people who has a very consistent profile image. So congratulations on that. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I spent I spent quite a bit of time, you know, making sure that it's kind of consistent across, you know, all the different social media platforms. I know, I know. There, there's there's a uh, there's this uh, what's her name, Courtney Barnett. She's this Australian kind of like folksy indie singer, and I, I listen to her music too much. And she has this funny line like. It's sort of, sort of like a lot of a lot of work went into making it look like you didn't do a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and I, I think I mean, I, I have that thing as well with like a lot of I sort of online my persona exudes this casualness. But like I spend a lot of time thinking about sh- what should I have this profile picture there and which profile picture should I have? And like, I mean, ev- everything is uh, is uh, my hair is very artfully messed up, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, I think it's always interesting, like when you see people's profile pictures, and you know, usually they're tiny, and then you meet them in person, and you're like, "Wow, I've been looking at your picture for like twelve months, and I still wouldn't have imagined that was what you look like." Totally. You know, <laughs> I, 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 I nowadays I say stuff like this because I know it kind of gets people off guard, and it's you know an icebreaker. But whenever I meet someone and they look exactly like their online picture, like I can't help myself. I'm always like, "You look exactly like your online picture," and because yeah. it is, it is a phenomenon, right? Like it doesn't actually happen that much. Interestingly enough. Yeah, it it doesn't. Um, I'm I'm usually surprised. It's kind of funny. It's like you're looking at a picture of that person. You would think um, that they look identical to the picture, but yeah, it's it's kind of funny. So so I getting to like the uh, interesting thing. I was looking through through your LinkedIn profile, and uh, I noticed that there's you have you have a, a, a long job history of looks like a lot of exciting problem solving things, and then I noticed that Excel kept popping up. Like it, maybe not as much as it as it used to. And and I was thinking, what's interesting about the way you list Excel is, and and this probably wasn't intentional at all, despite what we were just joking about, like the artfully messed up hair. But like the way you list using Excel is like this is evidence that I used a tool to solve a hard problem. <laughs> and so, and and it's it's you know things like Excel get a bad rap and and Office and stuff, but in reality, like it's often. Uh, a very critical tool for like breaking log jams and organizations or optimizing things, right? Like you need a tool for like modeling stuff out. And and the way that you wrote a lot of the experience in your job history is sort of like, there was a, there was basically a large brick wall that an organization was suffering. And I pulled out Excel and just jackhammered against it until we got through that wall, (laughs) which, which is, which is an interesting thing. I don't know. I mean, is that imagination on my part or is that the way that uh, you started learning how to use VLOOKUP and all of that? Um, yeah, it was more out of necessity because, um, we were doing a lot of communication. I I mean, I was working on, uh, the business analyst. I was working as a business analyst and then uh, later in capacity planning, both had heavy use of Excel. And the large reason for that was, you know, not that I didn't like writing scripts or doing data manipulation in software, but that the people I was communicating with, um, that was their like communication medium. Exactly. Understood Excel. So it was like, if I could put something in Excel and be like, change the values in the yellow boxes and you will get the answer that you're looking for. It's like all of a sudden it just like there's this massive amount of shared understanding and clarity that that comes. No, um, that, that's 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 so wonderful. And it's almost like 
I prepped you to say this because this is like one of my one of my big epiphanies that I had uh, working in the white collar world is you know I, I was I was a developer and then sort of like a, a a hipster analyst at Red Monk and then I went to go work at Dell in corporate strategy and I I had to very rapidly first accept and then learn how to use Office like it's just like this is just the way people communicate and it's right. like there is. N- end of discussion. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I agree. I definitely still like hate myself a little bit every time I write any VBA, but um, it's just a necessary, it's a necessary thing. And then when people start seeing like what you can actually do with it, if you're thoughtful about how you use the tool, it kind of exactly. helps them to expand their own horizons and do a little bit more than send you like a, 20,000 line spreadsheet and be like, here's my data. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Draw yeah. your own conclusions. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and that's, I mean, I mean, I mean, my, my interest in this topic is, is it, you know, it's, it explains why I picked up on, on Excel being mentioned so much, but it's like, once you figure out how to make a pivot table, it's sort of like, there's a whole new world open to you, not only you to like do analysis, but also, and, and, and the part I really liked about how you're explaining it is you get a new way of communicating with other people, right? Like creating the correct type of pivot table. And then if you can put a pivot chart on it, then it's just sort of like people's heads explode. But like you have this interesting new tool that you didn't used to have in your sort of classic IT nerd toolbox to really explain to people what's going on. And it's, it's, uh, it's kind of comforting after a while. And then, and then there's the whole PowerPoint. That's a whole other realm of like, uh, this is something that I, I, I know I shouldn't like, but all of a sudden I'm kind of liking the, the dark powers I, of communication I can wield with it as I learn how to use it better. Yeah, I am not as much of a PowerPoint fan, um, but, but yes, I agree in general um, that you know these tools... Uh, you know, like as devs, like and engineers, we just want to write Markdown, but that doesn't always work for everyone. <laughs> or you know, or ASCII Doctor or whatever, or like Open VI and be like, you know, here's just some unformatted text, isn't it beautiful? Um, but most people don't feel that way. <laughs> yeah, they're like, where are my colors? Where's my pretty fonts? Where's my, um, you know, yellow cells that you know I can put data into? Yeah, I I I, fe- I feel like I mean uh, I I feel like the Markdown War is kind of like the uh, it's 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 like you know 1960 and, and we're still upset about the outcome of the Spanish War Civil War. <laughs> it's just like it's it's been decided a long time ago and we're just sitting in cafes with our berets all upset about how things yeah. panned out. You know, I don't know. Yeah, but people really should use Markdown so much better. Like the whole, the whole, like using plain text files and all of that stuff. It's oh, so nice, but we'll never get there. So speaking of all of that, like give us a, uh, well, first of all, hello. Why don't you introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Matt Curry. I am director of platform engineering at Allstate and, um, you know, hanging out here on a Friday afternoon, um, rocking this podcast and having a cool conversation about different tech and, you know, kind of what's going on in the industry, what's going on in companies, how technology is changing, um, how enterprises are thinking about, you know, tech and how that impacts their business model, the way they think about all kinds of different parts of their business, um, from HR to legal to how they actually 
interact with their customers? Um, how do they identify and prioritize projects? All of that stuff. All of that stuff changes um, as technology becomes more of the center of an organization, or as it as the organization's desire to move in that direction. I guess. Yeah, and to that end, like I, I uh, you and I have been discussing for some time. Like uh, we've wanted to start a, a series of interviews, basically, where we we talk with people who are. I don't know, for lack of a better word, transforming. <laughs> you know, I, I, I try to always use the term becoming a software-defined business, but they're, they're relying on IT to help run the core of how their business executes. And, and what I like about your background and definitely uh, current job and kind of the way, the way you think about things is uh, if you're starting off from scratch, it's not easy, but it's a different set of problems that you have. But I, I'm, I'm really fascinated with that. How do you how do you change from a whole lot of stuff you already have into using IT in new and different ways? And, you know, you've, you've, uh, you've popped up in the, the, uh, the sort of pivotal world where, where I work during the day, I guess. I don't know. That's, we need to come up with a new way of saying day job, but you know, where, uh, where I, where I get my, my checks from. Um, and, and, and the, you know, I'll put I'll put a link in the show notes to the, uh, the interview that you had with, uh, with Andrew, Andrew Schaefer, and and it's 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 a good point of view that you have of how you how organizations suffer through um, changing essentially and and as an example like the example I use all the time that sticks in my mind is I remember one point you and Andrew were talking about uh, you know there's all these like two pizza teams and you've got to integrate the teams together and you go off and you talk to large enterprises who really generally want to do things in a new way and they're basically like. No one really does that, right? Like, what are the real things that they do? <laughs> right. And, 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 yeah. I, and I think that's like a key insight of, of a lot of transformation talk is like, no, no, no. We actually do those things. That's the whole point. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It's like black magic to the enterprise um, people looking. And, you know, the other thing I've been thinking about a lot, too, that it, it's really interesting, it's like, a bunch of software engineers or like engineers basically got together and started solving organizational behavior problems in a very computer <laughs> science way. It's like they started thinking about people as like compute threads and were like, how do I make my threading model more efficient? Like I have all these handoffs and all this wait time and I need to like make that better. Um, and yeah, like there's a lot of concepts that are borrowed certainly from the lean movement and, and other industries, which is, which is cool to see those parallels. But you know, you can actually kind of see remnants of like a computer science problem uh, in there. And I think your traditional business people don't, wouldn't want to admit that it really is an engineering problem. Totally. Like dealing with people. Yeah, no. <laughs> it's I, it, kind it, of weird because it's totally, you know, perceived as the opposite. Yeah. Like dealing with people is this art form. And there certainly is some of that, but there's a very structural engineering piece to uh, how communication flows, how people interact, um, where time gets spent. And it's very, I think it's kind of cool and interesting. No, yeah. I, I mean, this, this is something I've been thinking about a lot recently as well. Like I, I just recorded another podcast with uh, one, of, one of the newer people on our, our team at, at Pivotal Bridget. And, and uh, you know, as 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 most of my podcasts are, I was just meandering about talking about shiny objects as they came up in the conversation. But but one of the things we were talking about is like 
uh, well, you know, uh, if you incentivize people in a certain way, they're going to do what gives them a good payoff. <laughs> and, yeah. and so there's this sort of like basic, um, that's the first thing that you can like latch onto from an engineering perspective. Now, what that means is like, and then what if I told you, you could change those incentives <laughs> and then, right. and then all of a sudden that blows up into, so basically at an organization level, we're constantly building a system, right? And if you think about it in the sense of always building a system and what management can be, management, I don't think is, well, I should say management is not always practiced this way, but one way of practicing management is you're basically programming the organization and I, you're following this loop uh, that a programmer will follow or an engineer um, is uh, I code something, I see if it builds, and then I test it and see if it's what I want. And then I do that loop again. And the way you were phrasing it originally, it's really odd that I don't think that's how most management works. <laughs> like at all. No, like there's this expectation that there's like this master plan or playbook that you would kind of come in and just do it. But organizations are living, breathing things. And it's, it's hard, you know, to have just a predefined recipe. I think that's kind of where a lot of people have seen kind of the ITIL and maybe scaled agile framework and kind of some of these other like very structured uh, process oriented ways of implementing IT process um, breakdown yeah. is they don't really get the deep understanding. They get the superficial understanding and think it's just a magic recipe to success. Um, and, you know, there's always going to be some variant based on how the dynamics of the org, the culture. I mean, certainly I've seen very unique cultures from company to company. Um, and, you know, you can have multiple cultures that are good and you can have different types of cultures that are not good. And you may have an interesting dynamic where you have some good behavior and not some not so good behavior. And so um, you definitely have to adjust kind of how you approach those problems, how you implement that level of improvement based on where your org is at. Um, it's like a, it's like a sports team. Like if you have a sports team that, you know, doesn't know the basics, um, trying to teach them kind of the advanced stuff is not going to get them anywhere um, without, you know, having the basics down. And so you really have to adjust uh, your approach for where the organization is at, you know, at the time um, and where you see the biggest payoff and need. Right. So, so then, so then backing up just a little bit, I mean, we'll, we'll get back. There's, there's many threads to uh, pick up from there. The idea of uh, programming your organization and, and then, and then hopefully therefore your business. Like, I, I mean, just to, just to put a bookmark, like the first, the first thing I'm always interested in is like where the prime mover is, <laughs> right? Like, like who sets, like how is the strategy set and the goals and how does that trickle down to, uh, you know, running the team through the basics so they can do the advancing before we get to that. So how did you, uh, how did you get to this point where, where you're, you're thinking about like programming the organization? How did you, uh, how'd you start out? Um, it's mostly been observational actually. Um, just from, you know, watching organizational behavior, you know, in places I've worked and then kind of looking at uh, 
in Silicon Valley, how people have been approaching those problems and the people that have kind of driven some of the new movements, it's very much an engineering approach. Like these, a lot of these people are engineers, not really um, Harvard MBAs with, you know, organizational behavior backgrounds. And so I, I found that like really fascinating. Um, and I find it fascinating because it's changing not just tech, but like these patterns of, you know, how do we organize people? How do we get them to communicate? You know, how do we open these lines of communication and get drive more efficiency and drive better decision making um, and iterate faster and be more attentive to our customers um, is being borrowed from technology. And, and you're starting to see these things um, kind of expand into you know, marketing and, and all kinds of other areas of, of organizations where um, you would think that kind of those Harvard MBA type uh, people would be kind of dictating like what that structure should be. So I find that I just found that really fascinating. Like, I don't know, as an engineer, I think it's cool when the engineers win or like are doing cool stuff. And, changing and it, stuff outside of like technology, right? Yeah, and 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 looking back through the 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 various stuff you've done, the 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 jobs you've had, do you, do you remember back to like the first time where you kind of crossed the line from engineering into business stuff? <laughs> like 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 was there some moment where it's like, oh, I mean, we kind of t- talked about it earlier. Like, I I have to use Excel to communicate in in a in a business context. But when when did you kind of like start? expanding beyond like the computer if you will and 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 sort of go for hole it out of out of that pleasant though somewhat myopic view of things um so for me it was fairly early um my first job out of college was a startup and i was doing pure engineering work and then i took a a job shortly thereafter um as the economy got better because i graduated school uh basically when you know, being in tech, you were basically unemployable, which is hard to imagine at the moment. <laughs> right. But but when I'm in my graduating class, I think there were only one or two people that had job line, lined up when we when we graduated um, because everything had just blown up. And so uh, I was desperate for a job. I took a job and uh, it didn't pay very well. But then as the economy improved, you know, there were some other opportunities that presented themselves. And so uh, you know, I moved to a medical startup and worked there and, uh, at first was doing engineering and then, you know, eventually kind of moved into more of that management role. And, and that was kind of my first stab at, um, you know, trying to cross that threshold, so to speak. And I think I've always kind of approached it as a engineering problem to some degree, um, just because, you know, that's the way my brain works. Uh, but, you know, always looking to learn. Um, and, you know, I'm really, I really like feedback. I know that's something about myself. Like, you know, that's something I try and capitalize on is I, I spend a lot of time trying to gather feedback, trying to observe people, trying to understand, like, why they do what they do or or why they're making the decisions that they make or, you know, if I like something about how they communicate with others or how they sell their story, I try and dissect it and figure out, on, you know, kind of what's going on. Because a lot of people are kind of unaware of their own communication style, right? Yeah. It's just kind of this natural thing that they do. And so even if you were to sit them down and ask them and say, hey, how do you do this? 
they may not be able to articulate it that well because it may just be something that comes so naturally. Yeah, no, it's 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 when whenever you uh encounter someone whose job it is to sort of like help you improve your communication <laughs> whether whether it's like in a professional or personal context or whatever like it's often shocking uh how self-centered your thoughts about yourself are like like in the sense of like uh you're making a lot of assumptions when you're talking this way or you need to be more explicit about what you say and and the point being that like communication it turns out to be really hard <laughs> <laughs> especially especially in a professional context where like you're not necessarily really choosing the people that you're having to work with day to day and you just all of a sudden have to very efficiently uh talk and communicate with them it's it's an odd uh i don't know it's it's an odd thing for an engineering mindset to get over it starts to become a whole new skill to build up it but, is and, and that, is, that also I, reminds me have you uh have you come across this book uh a cio in wolf's clothing I haven't. I should I should send that to you. I'll put a link in the show notes for it. But it's it's by a, a Gartner analyst, and and it's basically like, uh, it's like it's like a Machiavellian like bucket of advice for CIOs. <laughs> and 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 I was reminded of this because she she brings up a point. She was saying, you know, many CIOs like yourself uh, came from the engineering ranks. And so they're really good at everything we've been talking about, like understanding a system and like getting all of that knowledge and researching and like bringing things to the table. And, and what they're usually not trained in is what the non-technical people are trained in, which is for lack of a better word, politics, right? Like all, all of the softer stuff of, of persuasion and rhetoric and, and as as anything that references in this pattern after Machiavelli, like it's it, depending on your your view of things, it can be terrible or bad. But it's it's very practical. There's lots of interesting advice in there about, you know, the her her point, which I think is um, it's interesting for the topic of like organizations transforming because there's a lot of um, a lot of different tactics, as I, as I'm sure you know, you have to deploy <laughs> to, to change yeah. how a large company works. And her point is metaphorically of all the animals right so there's sort of like peaceful doves and like lambs are nice and then there's also sharks that are always attacking and uh what are the other ones she has there's snakes that are conniving and convincing but in the middle is like this wolf right like a wolf is kind of like a pack animal it's kind of you know it's it's kind of a nice noble creature it can like rip your throat out or it could be very nice and and everyone <laughs> and and it, and a wolf knows how to like shift between all these different modes and i don't know if this is true but she says a wolf has no predators right and and so versus like a lamb or something like that right but it's uh it kind of brings up the point that as you get more and more outside of the engineering world there's this whole different toolkit of stuff that you have to start using and uh and taking on and some of it can be a little uncomfortable at first but if if you're sort of focused on the goals then it's makes sense to, to use it so that's my quick review of that book but it's it's a good overview of that yeah that's uh, yeah that's definitely true i will say that for sure i mean there are just things um, as an engineer that you're kind of like, why do I, why do I have to do this? Um, you know, why do I have to like explain myself <laughs> to all these people or like convince them that I know the right thing to do? Uh, I think that part is maybe one of the harder parts is, you know, you're maybe used to explaining yourself to one other person 
like if you're pairing or solving a, so- a software problem, or maybe you've got a small team, right? But then now, you know, you're actually trying to influence uh, people who are, you know, at your level or above you in an organization that you really, you have no authority over them. And you're trying to kind of convince them to come along on this journey with you. And it's a journey that may require some pretty significant, you know, personal sacrifice on their end. And, you know, it's not what to name a variable. Like there's a lot, the implications of the decision or the implications of committing to that journey are much larger. And so you have to meet people where they're at. Um, And in many cases, I think it's interesting because they won't be engineers or they won't have come from engineering backgrounds. Whereas like when you're developing software with another engineer, you kind of both have at least this shared understanding about principles of engineering. Right. Um, When you're, when you're a manager or when you're a leader and you're communicating with other leaders, in many cases there's like almost zero shared foundation because it's all based. It's often based on your personal experience or what you've read or, you know, kind of whatever um, recipe of things that have helped bring together how you see the world and how you see organizations and what you believe about like what's right for getting for the organization itself and for the company and for getting closer to the goal you're trying to achieve. And I think that's really interesting because it means that you're almost always starting from nothing. Right. And you kind of, you have to learn to do that. That's very difficult. No, this, this raises a, 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 an interesting, fascinating point is like, um, I don't know if this is true, but it seems true. Again, taking the position of having come from more of an engineering background and then you kind of get exposed to the business, right? It seems that there is very little shared culture in business land. <laughs> and and not only shared culture, but sort of like shared assumptions and practices and things like that, right? It's very, it can seem very like, like you're saying, you're starting from nothing each time. And, um, I mean, I, I, I don't know if you've, you've encountered this phenomena at places you've worked, but in, in business situations I've been in, a common thing is that there's almost like a tops down mandate to do something like, um, I don't know, let's go, we need to go cloud or, or whatever. And you, you may be given the responsibility to go off and sort of implement that and make it happen. And then you kind of get shocked. You find out that as you go visit all the other parts of the business, they don't really care that there was a mandate and you have to convince each of them to actually do it. <laughs> and, it and it's kind of like this weird, from an engineering perspective, it's like, well, but there was a story in the Kanban board that said you're supposed to go cloud. And so that's the requirement. Like that's, that's an unspoken thing in sort of like engineering is like, if it's a requirement, that's what you do. Like you don't, you might connive around how it's done, but you have to do it. Whereas these kind of mandates I found like, you have to do a lot of convincing for each organization to actually do it, which is kind of odd, like, like from an engineering perspective, but I think totally normal in the business world. Yeah. And I think I, it, that kind of drive has been, it drives me crazy because oftentimes, 
you know, people will say, oh, I need business justification for doing this. Um, <laughs> right. Right. Like, it's almost like we're business justifying like everything. You know, you have to write a business case. I, I, know, think, I, I think I think that's the, th- that's the equivalent of a developer telling you it's going to take nine man months to do it. They're just like, yeah, I don't like, want to do this. So here's a bad estimate. <laughs> it's almost as if like, I don't know if it's the default response because that's what people are, are just used to doing. Or if it's the default response because it, they want to kind of cover themselves in case, you know, it doesn't go well. Or if it's just them trying to give you something to do for the next month so that you go away and stop <laughs> bothering them. Exactly. <laughs> it, as it definitely feels like the latter <laughs> right. at, in the moment. So, um, you know, I think it's, it's key to not get too caught up in that. But, um, you know, one thing I think we've learned over the last, uh, you know, decade or so is that a lot of these soft costs are very difficult to measure and that people who went down this path or that carved out the path kind of just did it because it seemed like the right thing to do. And, you know, they couldn't really assign a number to it. They were just trying to go fast and make work fun. Um, and I think that's kind of an interesting dichotomy. And so when you get met with, I need a business justification. You're like, well, it's more fun. Like, isn't that a good enough justification? (laughs) Right. Like who doesn't want to have fun? It's like, no, that's not good enough. It's, and, um, I think it's interesting. I think it's, um, you know, I don't, I haven't figured that one out yet. Uh, to be honest, I, I approach each, each one of those conversations a little bit differently, depending on, you know, who's, who's sending me down that road and, and what they're looking for exactly, but yeah, and 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 there's also there's also um, there's a bit of unlearning from an engineering mindset you have to do, where to some extent, it, especially especially in software development, you're sort of taught early on, uh, don't ever just sit down and start coding. Like you need to make sh- like your time. I mean, I mean, your time is valuable, but it's but it's more that it's easy for you to write to code up a bunch of stuff that no one actually wants because it's enjoyable. So figure out a process by which you can get requirements in and you can figure out here are the things that you should be coding and get feedback from from it. Right. So you're not supposed to just like idly just code up stuff for fun. And so that's the first thing you have to unlearn is actually in some situations where you're trying to be innovative or creative, a lot of what you're trying to do is set up an environment in which spontaneity can kind of happen. So there's not really any requirements except to set up a situation where you're going to discover what the requirements are, <laughs> which which right. is a little unsettling for engineers. But but I think I think they can kind of get over it. Um, but then it's even more unsettling if if to bring back Excel, if you're supposed to reduce your argument down to an Excel spreadsheet and you're like, well, I don't I mean, the business case is we're going to figure out something new that we should be doing. I, I don't know how to model that. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. It's like people are going to collaborate more. Well, does that matter? You know, like you're and you're supposed to reduce that down to like a financial number. Um, but it, there's so 
the system is so complicated that it would be impossible to get close. And so to try even attempt it is so, so superficial and so far from what could possibly be accurate, but it makes people feel better because there is a number. And so it's like, how do you break through that? Um, and I think it's, you know, you, to some degree you have to appease them. There will always be a, you'll have to provide a number, but you know, it's a number with hopefully a, a ancillary conversation or with a bunch of additional context. So, so like, maybe, like what's a, what's an example or two of like how, how you've done that in the past? Like, do you just kind of come up with some kind of like bullshit numbers or, I mean, it doesn't sound like you do, but like what, I mean, part of the trick is you come up with a model, right? Like you, you subtly re-ask the question so that you can get to an answer. But how do you, uh, how have you been modeling that stuff out or, or approaching that? Um, so usually what I try and think about is uh, how are they thinking about what the business case looks like? Or how are they thinking about a number or what's driving their cost, right? Because when somebody asks you for that, they have some preconceived notion in their mind about what that is or what what that cost is. And this is especially true when you have, say, like a testing org off to the side that may not be included, um, you know, uh, data center costs and uh, speed to market. Uh, you know, speed to market isn't necessarily captured well in a financial number. Right. And so... Um, trying to kind of distill distill that down um, to showing kind of that full picture or expanding the context to drive out additional questions is kind of how I approach it. So it's less about it's less about what the number is um, and more about providing as much additional context going into that number to drive out you know the conversations that we actually want to have. Um, so, you know, and in many cases, it's mul the multiple numbers that go into the model that, that itself that drives the conversation. Um, so that could be, you know, maybe you throw in a, a line item on there that's like cost savings from not developing features that nobody uses. And then, right. like, like most, most uh, organizational managers aren't going to think about that as like a cost savings opportunity. But if you throw it in there as a line item, it gets you to driving that conversation around, well, yeah, because if we, if we iterate faster, if we're deploying more often, if we're getting feedback more quickly, then, you know, all these things that we do um, that, you know, we end up scrapping six months later or maybe never get scrapped and are maintained forever, even though nobody's really using them or one or two people are using them so we can't get rid of them. Um, but like we are not get really deriving very much business value from it. Uh, other than if we take it away, the customer is going to be upset at us. Right. Um, that, you know, those are the conversations that you want to get to. That's the meat of it. And I think the model can help get you there um, by basically the how you, I always think of it as like line items or, you know, laying out kind of a financial statement. Because um, a lot of managers think, in that way. Right. Like, yeah. The uh, sheet of this initiative. And, and right? th this, this point in particular is one that I've, I don't really read like academic literature 
I don't know if I should or not, but but it, it seems like sort of in the uh, IT community, the idea of somehow calculating money you save by not writing code people never use. <laughs> that that is 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 a, a concept that's been hashed about hashed around quite a bit recently, and 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 I I think it the, I think the best explanation I read recently was in uh, uh, what's it called? There's this book, Leading the Transformation, by I think his name's Gary Groover or or whatever, and uh, his co-author. I always feel terrible if a book's ever written by more than one person. I only remember the one person who wrote it. So that's uh, yeah. He wrote he wrote that awesome um, book uh, that details the HP exactly. transformation. Exactly, uh, um, and and he, uh, I can't remember the name of it at the moment, but I recommend it to a lot of people because it's got some great examples about blowing up a giant monolithic code base and exactly. transforming agile. Yeah, no, and that that's that's I need to go back and read that one, but that's what makes this book and so interesting is he he starts, or I should say, they they start all their advice from existing legacy IT <laughs> instead of from scratch, right? So much of much of what they go over is is transformation, right? Like like the topic at hand. And anyways, so he he develops, he fleshes out a bit, you know, uh, one part of the argument you were, or the line item you were talking there, which is and and it starts with something that people often don't admit, make explicit or understand is that we're pretty good at software, but we're also pretty terrible at it. <laughs> <laughs> like, like it's not, it's not really that artful of a craft, like other things you might be familiar with, like, like, you know, bridge building and manufacturing and, and things like that. And so we're still always kind of figuring out how this software development and productization works. And therefore, that's kind of why we're bad at estimates. And like, there's all the, um, the standish reports of stuff being wasted and things like that. So there's that. Like we don't do software perfectly because it's kind of ineffable. Like it's just very poorly understood at the moment. On the other hand, software has this wonderful trait that it's really flexible. You can kind of make software do anything. Like that's the point of software. And so if you take these two truths, if you will, into consideration, you want to build out a system that builds as little software as possible each time because you can always change it later. And when you do that, one of the ways you start thinking about it gets to the line item part you're talking about is if instead you like write a whole bunch of software, you're kind of wasting your, there's a lot of waste in your system. And so part of what we would be proposing and changing to doing things in a DevOps and agile and continuous delivery way is there's all this money we're going to save because most software that you write isn't really ever going to be used. And there's, I, I, I wish there was a better study of it. Like it all goes back to this, like I think 2008 Microsoft study where they did a bunch of A-B testing on their um, Web 2.0 sites. And they found out that like, you know, 70 or 80% of the, the features were never used by anyone. And so that gets generalized and all sorts of stuff like that. But if we start with this premise that like most software doesn't ever get used, then there's awesome optimization to be had by just not writing that software. <laughs> <laughs> or, and, yeah. and, and, and then if you can reduce that down to like a business case, basic, and that's where lean stuff comes into play is like what we're talking about, we're kind of back ending into this idea of removing waste into the system. And that's why you should be interested in transforming the way that you do software so much. 
Yes. Yeah, that definitely speaks to like the financial piece. Um, if you can, I mean, if you can try to estimate that. But as you said, like the best that you can do is maybe try and grab some numbers from uh, the Microsoft study you mentioned or similar and apply it and say, you know, this is what other people have observed. Um, if you're, if you have good metricing, then maybe you can look in your own system and say, hey, you know, we looked over whatever this web application and we, out of the 200 pages that exist, maybe, you know, 90% of the traffic goes to five. Uh, <laughs> right. And, and in most systems that you're right, that will be the case. And so it's, I, it is really interesting. Um, and like I said, it's, it's really about having that conversation than it actually is about the dollar figure. Um, I mean, the yeah. dollar figure is definitely important and the business people definitely want to know that there will be savings at the end of it. Um, but it's also about building a better product as well. Because if you're not spending time building those features that nobody's going to use, that hopefully means you can spend more time building features that people will use and will love. Um, and so hopefully that means that you're ending up with a better product and that you're able to go, you know, react to market changes faster. So, so as, as you've been doing all this uh, transformation stuff more and more, like how, once you have that conversation and you sort of win people over, like what kind of like systems or like project management or whatever, like how, what kind of like day-to-day, week-to-week processes do are, are, are you putting into place and finding are useful? Um, so we've kind of started to talk, we've started to talk about that more and more, especially as demand for kind of this new way of approaching um, engineering uh, efforts has started to ramp up. Um, we've really adopted the... Uh, let's see, kind of the agile way of thinking about some of this stuff. Um, and we've there's kind of a couple different buckets that stuff fall into. So one is kind of what we're calling, I guess, the extreme programming bucket, which is, you know, the iterations are basically a week long. It's very detailed tasks, and they, they uh, kind of fall out and get prioritized. And it means that the skills on the team have to be able to do that. Um, and so like your product owner is very technical because they're helping break down stories into pretty fine grained engineering tasks early. And then, right. you know, making sure those get prioritized. It also means that you're not planning, um, very far in advance, which really makes budgeting people nervous. Um, <laughs> yeah, because it becomes less about, how much is this project going to cost and more about what is the financial run rate for this product? Yeah. And and that is a very different way of looking at it than I think most enterprises uh, have done in the past. And uh, we're, we're starting to get through that conversation. We're starting to, to, you know, get that dialogue going and I think it's been really interesting um, and good, and, and we're starting to make progress. But it's been definitely a huge mind shift 
and explaining to people like, well, why would you want to do that? Like we have all these great processes for estimating projects. And then like one thing I haven't figured out too is speaking of like becoming, have being an engineer and, and um, you know, basically interacting with people who aren't just to go off on a little tangent here, like people are like, well, we have all this great planning and it's like, but is it, is it great? Like, <laughs> Nobody really ever asked that question. Like that, well, does it work? (laughs) And you don't, and you don't want to come off like a complete jerk, but it's like, (laughs) does anybody really ever ask that question? Like, ask that question? Because, you know, the the litmus test from a, from a 10,000 foot view would maybe indicate that it's not so fantastic. um, But at least it makes you feel warm and fuzzy because you have a number. This all goes back to like the security that having a number provides, no matter how wrong it could be. (laughs) <laughs> right, right. No, and and that's that's the dark side of the Microsoft Office tool chain, right? Is like yes. it, it can give a false sense of security and a, and a shield. And and no, you're, you're you're reminding me of uh, back in my younger days when I was at BMC, and they were uh, in the early two thousands. They were switching over to doing Scrum. Um, we had we had that similar pushback, mostly in the engineering organization, of like, why are we changing our process? Like, our process is fine and it works well, and and I, I, I would, the snarky thing I would always reply is like, what process, <laughs> right? Like we have no process and, and like, right. so it's not that we're changing a, our process. It's that we're getting a process, right? And it's almost like, uh, um, we should never, you can't really question the basis, you know, in, in my snarky youth, you can't question the basis of if agile software development is a good idea because it's at least an idea. Like, whereas the moment we're basically just chaos. And and I think I don't, you know, when I, when I've cohorted around in the business world, it's, I, I can never tell if it's worse than that or not as bad as that. <laughs> Cause there are always like KPIs and goals and strategy and things like that, but they, they never really seem to be operationable as, as far as I can tell. Like it's, it's always hard to discern what the process is, which makes it hard to transform because it's hard to, it, it's, it's almost like trying to wrestle with, with, uh, uh, with mud, right? Like if you can't get your, wrap your hands around it and describe it, you can't explain why you would want something different. Right. But you, you brought up another interesting point that, that I think is, it's another thing that can come off as being really engineering arrogant, but is also probably vital is, so if you're going to be moving this quickly, like doing weekly releases and basing your business on software, you probably need your product owners to understand how software works and is created. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Which is shockingly kind of a foreign concept, right? Because uh, it, it's not easy, right? But you have to under... And, and, and I, I analogize this back to... I remember back when, when web development was a new thing, you would get like this PSD file from the Photoshop people. And as a developer, you would be like, well, this is impossible to put into a web page. And if you just understood what was possible to put in a web page, you wouldn't give me these crazy page layouts. And analogously, like there's almost a certain amount of educating the business about the, what's possible and the constraints are in software if we want them to start driving the agenda so hard. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's really an interesting, well, it, and I think the other side of it that's interesting is like 
superficially to us, it's like, okay, so we're going from, uh, you know, waterfall to agile, or we're going from, you know, agile to something else, lean, whatever. Um, it seems like it is just a, a process thing, but it, it's not, it's much bigger than that. Like the implications. So if you think about a traditional, uh, enterprise that maybe kind of came up in, you know, the sixties, seventies, um, in often cases, there's a culture of like centralized decision making mm-hmm. and the ability for agile to succeed and be successful hinges on the ability to decentralize decision making. And so how do you take all these people who aren't used to making decisions or feeling like they're empowered to make decisions and be like, yeah, like go make decisions now. Like that is much harder than like learn Java. (laughs) Yeah, no, exactly. Like if you reverse the flow the other way, the engineering types have to learn a lot. (laughs) Yeah. So, so how, how, how are you seeing that kind of pan out? And, and, and as as I want to do, I'll ask a question and contextualize a little bit because the the other part, the other part I thought was interesting about what you're saying before we went to the, uh, the little rat hole there was when you, when you go to finance, you're, you're trying to argue to them about, um, a flow of money being spent, not necessarily, um, a dependable set of assets being created, right? So, we don't know exactly what features we're going to implement by what date, but we will have something. And we also have this velocity and this flow of cash. So that's kind of a way of monitoring it. And I mean, that's that's sort of, I don't know if it's, I would call it extreme agile, but it's sort of, you see this in the vendor world. Uh, like, we're not really going to tell you what features we're going to have in a year, but we're kind of going to publish our roadmap and we'll get there one day. Right. Like we don't know. I mean, you can it's more it's dependable that we'll be releasing something, maybe not the exact things we'll be releasing. And I've noticed that vendors are kind of like this. They don't really promise things like they used to. Um, But then the flip side of that is exactly what you're saying is the engineering organization has to know how to operate in this this almost opportunistically flow state where they they're discovering the requirements. And I have to imagine that's really hard for IT people to do like to be serendipitous essentially. I think it is. I I mean, we've spent so much time. I've thought a lot about this, about, you know, is it just the cost of making a decision has been so high in the past that we've built up kind of all this process and even like organizational structure around making a decision, no matter how small it is. Yeah, it's so like every decision needs to be vetted by like five architects and finance and a business person, and um, you know, like agile and DevOps is pretty much the opposite of that. And people start asking like really interesting questions around, okay, well, like my job was pretty much that thing, so now what do I go do? Yeah, well, um, we we should dedicate an episode to just that topic. <laughs> we could we could dedicate a whole episode to that topic. Um, but it, but yeah, I, it's an interesting dichotomy of how kind of everybody has to change and how this thing, this transformation that seems very technology focused and, and really at a superficial level, fairly simple is incredibly complex and touches, it has tentacles into every other 
part of the company because um, you're starting to make technology kind of the center focus. And so it means it kind of branches out. And so you may be able to iterate really fast and maybe you're doing agile and lean and all this great stuff and you're writing test-driven code. But at the end of the day, if the business person who's deciding like what product to go build doesn't know how to capitalize on that capability. Yeah. It doesn't really matter. No, I, I, yeah. And that's, I think, I think that's one of the larger things that's becoming more fascinating to me as, especially working at Pivotal as, 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 as I, as I meet and talk with, you know, folks like yourself, I mean, you, you guys run Pivotal Cloud Foundry and, and like you're, you're getting towards that. You, you want to get to that goal that we've been talking about, right? Where it's more about flow of things rather than big monolithic stuff. And whether, whether people are using Cloud Foundry for it or not, like I talk with more and more people about that shifting over to this continuous flow of functionality (laughs) rather than a product. And and I think you've pinpointed where I think the next um, breaking point or or wall or or moment of innovation will come is like so what does it mean if like every quarter the business can change what their business is <laughs> like do they want that <laughs> and and do their do their customers want that and how does that sort of pan out because um. The, the the way you put it originally, like all of this becomes very circular and recursive and it's hard to figure out what the chicken and the egg was. But I, I think I think you're right that a large reason why IT has sucked so bad and been on such long cycles is because it's really expensive and slow, right? Like it, it was it's it took a long time to get some features into production or even ship them or deploy stuff. So you had to spend a lot of time making sure you got it right. But when you get sort of like a very like, you know, cloud native or whatever we end up calling it, but DevOpsy thing in place, you could not only theoretically, but you could just deploy some new type of functionality, try it out for a week. And if that didn't work, you can just roll it back and do something different. <laughs> and and you have it essentially it's not free. I mean, I mean, you you, you tell me the right way to think about it in, in your experience of doing this stuff. It's not it's not free to make changes but it's almost like infinitely freer than it used to be. You can just try stuff out and it doesn't really cost you very much. And it should completely change how you think about how software is used. And that's kind of like the grand theory I'm excited to see play out is like, does that therefore mean that companies will just start throwing all sorts of interesting approaches to how they use software out or not? And I have no idea. And just to wrap up, like the bad side of this is like, I'm one of those people who's always complaining about the ephemeral nature of software that Google does, right? Like they'll just throw stuff out there and no longer support it or some st- something will take off and they'll support it incredibly or Apple does this as well, right? Like they'll have software development teams that just put something out there and then they don't update it for years. And so it can kind of be annoying. On the other hand, I'd sort of rather they just try things. <laughs> but but I, I don't know. I, I mean, in the, in the different businesses you've worked, like what What's been the encounter so far with businesses treating their own business models as kind of ephemeral and changing? Like, are they scared of that or excited about it? Or do they even realize that's a potential thing that they can start playing with? Um, I think so. I mean, I think to some degree, yes, but it's still much, um, it's still much less flexible than 
I think us as software engineers would like to think it is right. Um, like we're, we're super flexible because the business doesn't know, you know, what they actually want. So that's kind of, you know, mm. we built this whole process as software engineers around like scope creep, right? Like, have you ever been on a project where like the requirements actually stayed the same? Like, no, never, ever. So, you know, we built this process to basically deal with that problem to keep our own sanity. And then I think a whole bunch of people ended up realizing that, well, um, the customer doesn't really know what they want either. And so like the business doesn't know what they want because the customer doesn't know what they want. Um, and so it's kind of this just, it flows down, it flows through. So, um, I've seen it to some degree. I mean, certainly, uh, when I was at, I was at PayPal when we did mobile, right. When we first did mobile payments and it was a really interesting discussion. It was like, we want to be first to market on this. We think we don't know what it's going to look like. People weren't really doing mobile, you know, the way they are today in yeah. 2006. Yeah. Definitely. Right? Um, and we're like, yeah, we're going to just do this and just like see what happens. Um, and, it, and it worked out. It turned out to be a really successful platform and being first to market was hugely beneficial. So um, there is some of this, like we're just going to try stuff and see what happens, see what sticks and and throw it out there. There still has to be some, I mean, this comes back to the comfort of the number, which I think has been, you know, the reoccurring theme of this podcast because at some level, uh, you know, in the C-suite, there has to be some comfort of, okay, like we may not know specifically what we're building, but we need to know generally where we're going and what we're after and like what we're trying to accomplish. Um, right. And so do, I, do, think, do you think it's, I think, do you think that's it's, where the journey is. Do you think it's fair to say it, like we should know the problem we're solving? <laughs> or, or or something like that like or or is it impossible to be more specific on that i i struggle with being more specific i mean certainly so we should just do some concrete examples like if we look at at docker like that wasn't their core business like that fell out like that was an ancillary thing and it ended up being hugely successful i think in most cases though that's the exception rather than the rule right um but we want to put ourselves in a place where we can capitalize on opportunities like that if they present themselves. Um, but at the end of the day, we still, especially for pub, you know publicly traded firms that have to report back to boards of directors and shareholders, we have to still be able to tell a story. It's not like we're just flailing in the wind and like waiting for something to happen. Right, right, right. right. Like there's still there's still a story of like, we believe this is where the market's going. We believe this is what the competitive la landscape looks like. So we are doing X, Y, and Z. Right. Uh, hey, like I imagine in y'all's case, right? Like it's sort of like, uh, we, we're an insurance company and there's some ancillary things we do like roadside assistant, or I shouldn't say ancillary. There's additional things we do, but just using that as an example and so we will be providing insurance and the basics of that business model are understood, but what we're exploring are new and interesting things we can do in that space. Right. And so we may not know exactly like what those things will be, but 
I, I mean, and, and I would think that would be an interesting thing for uh, businesses to be able to say is like, we're always not dramatically changing and reinventing in a painful way, the way we do our business, but we're coming up with better ways for our business to operate. We're not just doing the same thing over and over again. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, again, like I think it's telling that story and um, you know, it's obviously setting ourselves up to react more quickly to changes because the landscape changes a lot faster than it used to like consumer behavior changes very quickly now. Um, and you know, new competitors, right? Like, um, see startups, you know, that want to take just a piece of, you know, a very large business. Um, we want to be able to react to those shifts very quickly. And that's what this is all about, but there still has to be like some fundamental understanding of, you know, what that landscape looks like and where to invest, um, to set yourself up, you know, for success now. Um, or at least, or, or set yourself up for success into what you see as the future of of your business and and new market trends and new technology that's emerging. Um, and we have to be able to tell that story. And I think one thing that very few have figured out at this point is how do you how do you do that um, without the comfort of the number. Um, exactly so to speak right it's, yeah uh, and and like, and then and then the the other the other knowing trick is to do it without excessive use of fear <laughs> right like yeah because because it's i shouldn't say always but a, an, another thing is to be like well if we don't do this catastrophe right and so you know it's it's you have to wield that because it's it's sometimes responsible to be paranoid but it's it's uh, there should also be ways other than relying on fear to to do that as well. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a time for a plan, and there's a time for like we're just gonna have to trust that we can figure this out. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Well, well, to, and, to 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 that end, to to wrap up here, uh, we to, and to the to the point of figuring it out. I mean, you, you went over this a little bit at the beginning, uh, Matt, but we should lay out kind of what our plan is for this, this podcast series. And I'll just, I'll just give my overview and, and you, uh, you add in what you're thinking is I want to, you know, there's, there's several podcasts that I listen to where there are uh, some co-hosts and they, they interview practitioners and people in, in the middle of things to try to explore and figure it out. And, uh, as I've gotten to know you, Matt, like, uh, you're, you're, uh, you're a curious practitioner who, who like to, uh, talk, who likes to talk through things kind of maybe not as vociferously as I do. I, I can be pretty wordy here, but I, what, what I'm, I'm tr we're trying to line up here. There's several people who are going through uh, transforming, if you will, like changing the way their businesses are operating based on using all this uh, exciting new IT and practices and figuring out those things we were just talking about. And I think, I think between Matt and I, we can both bring in some interesting people to talk to and more importantly, have interesting discussions with them. And, uh, I, you know, we'll hopefully do this for, uh, many episodes, but we can start documenting how, uh, how companies are figuring out transforming essentially and becoming more, we'll see what we end up calling it in six or 12 months, but becoming more cloud native -y or, uh, becoming software defined businesses. Yes. I think, um, that's definitely what we're after is trying to understand, as you said, kind of technology-driven transformation and um, you know, why people are going that direction as well as what struggles they're having, especially outside of the realm of IT because 
like Zita think about we discussed earlier in the podcast, it's you know, stuff is purely a technology problem, but the truth of the matter is that um, the real challenge is is not technology. That's um, right. It's it's people and an organization. Yeah. yeah. If if and, if uh, the if, uh, if if for for those who haven't been uh, sufficiently nauseated by my donkey conversation, that's that's the the big argument that I make in my uh, my donkey presentations is that technology is really not the issue. It's all the meatware problems. <laughs> and it's it's, figure, it's figuring out how to change around how your organization works, how you think about things and how to reprogram the meat sacks, the software and hardware. You know, they might be tedious and difficult and and it might be confusing, but it works nowadays. <laughs> and once you get that into place, you have to make sure that your meatware is sufficiently migrated as well. Uh, to take full advantage of the the whole stack of hardware, software, and meatware. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and so to that end, so uh, this this if if you want to uh, subscribe to this or tell people about it, we'll be keeping it at at uh, lordsofcomputing dot com. One of my favorite domain names that I'm always looking for an excuse to use. And uh, there, there's a few episodes in, previously in the feed that are kind of in a similar vein of talking with people in the in the IT world and how they've gone about. But basically, uh, go check out that, and we'll we'll put the feed in uh, iTunes and everywhere else once we get it published. And if you have uh, any comments or, or ideas or uh, or think you might be in, an interesting person to talk to, feel free to reach out. I'm I'm Cote uh, in Twitter. How about yourself, Matt? Uh, Matt J Curry. There you are, Twitter. and uh, we'll we'll look forward to talking to everyone next time. Bye bye. <laughs>